Well, over the last couple of months, those of you that have been at LBC in that time, you will have noticed, I hope, I'm sure you have, that we've been uh, work, walking through uh, one, of the, one of the accounts written by an early follower of Jesus or an early, a person in the early church about the life of Jesus. We've been looking at, at some of the stories from the account of Mark. And today we've arrived at the very last part of the story, which isn't an accident, we planned for that to happen. Um, and I want to read it to you first. So it's the... It's the, the Verses 1 to 8 of Mark uh, chapter 16. Now, some of your Bibles will have a passage after verse 8. In fact, most of our Bibles still put that in, I think. But the reality is that the best of scholarship and the best of tracing back the text to the original make it pretty clear that Mark's gospel, with Mark in control of it, probably stopped at verse 8. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 8 today. Let me read it to you. Saturday evening... When the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. If you recall, they hadn't had an opportunity to do that because the Sabbath had come down on the day that Jesus died. So very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, well, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? I read a little bit about these stones. Apparently, they were relatively easy to roll into place, but they got slotted into place with a little groove in front of the door to the tomb. And once they were in that groove, rolling them out (laughs) was not such an easy job. And this was three women that had gone uh, to do this. So who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, Oh, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, and he isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body, said the angel. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women said, sure thing. (laughs) The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And that's how Mark ends his account of the story. It's not one preachers often choose to speak about on Resurrection Sunday. It's so different to some of the other, or the other accounts. It's got some of the basics in there. The other accounts talk about uh, the first visitors to the tomb being afraid and a bit bewildered, but they go on quite quickly to talk about uh, how people were also overcome with joy and hope. Um, and the other accounts tell They unpack the empty tomb a lot more, don't they, if you've got them in your mind. They give you much more detail about what's happened. They they talk about the resurrected Jesus a lot more. They tell stories of Jesus being with his friends and eating fish on the beach with his friends all before he physically left this earth once and for all. The other stories do a lot more unpacking of the implications of the empty tomb and the resurrection. So as I say, preachers don't usually pick Mark's version to use on Easter Sunday, but it's the version that we've chosen to look at this year. And it's got to be in the Bible for a reason, hey, even if it is a little less celebratory or comfortable for us. So I want to ask today, what does it tell us? And I want to particularly ask this question. Why did Mark end his story with frightened and silent witnesses to the empty tomb? That's where he ends it for us. 
I'm going to give you the heads up, the answer, <laughs> and then we're going to unpack it, and maybe you'll agree by the end. I think he did that because Mark wants his readers to choose. I think he did that just watching how Mark has written his whole account of Jesus' life. Short, sharp, snappy, pointing to action. I think Jesus wants, uh, I think Mark wants people to choose, and particularly to choose to step into the story. That's my theory. Shall we explore it? Let's start with the women. They turn up at the tomb, wondering how they're going to roll back the stone. The stone is rolled back. That's a little bit gobsmacking, probably. And the body is gone, and there's this kind of stranger in white sitting in there. Can you imagine the questions that would have been going through their heads? Think about it if it was you and two of your friends. You've turned up at the graveside of a, another good friend of yours, ready to do the appropriate uh, burial things that needed to be done and hadn't been done, and you find the grave disturbed and the body gone. Again, just take 30 seconds. What questions would come into your head? Think about it and share it with someone sitting alongside you. What would you be thinking? <laughs> I can see hands going up like this. <laughs> Okay, I, I brainstormed the list of questions that I was pretty sure I would have, and they, they're probably similar to some of yours. First obvious one, well, where is Jesus? Who took his body? Why would they do that? How did they move the stone to do that? And of the young man dressed in white, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? What do you mean Jesus is in Galilee? You mean someone took his body there? And I think I'd just have a big why. Just why? Why? What? So the women at the empty tomb, they're frightened and they're bewildered. And it isn't at all helped by the young man sitting there who'd said some incredible things. But I think if you read with me, it's not too much of a step to also see some of the things that this man was implying. He might not have said the words. But it's like he was saying to the women, don't be waiting at this empty tomb. Don't come here with your burial spices and turn into a, a wailing wall. Don't make coming to this tomb the first of annual anniversary visits on which you reminisce nostalgically about what a great guy Jesus was and how he had so much to live for. Just get the feeling some of that's implied in what the angel, the messenger says. It's as if the angel messenger said, yes, Jesus does have a lot to live for. And in fact, he did say he is alive. And he's waiting for you to join him. He's not here. He told you what he was going to be doing. He's waiting for you to join him in Galilee if you choose to do that. And the women, confronted by God's remarkable, unimaginable, direct intervention into human history, they don't know how to react. So they react like we human beings often do when we are faced with something we've got no words or, or description for our understanding of. They reacted with fear and confusion and they ran away, and at least for a time, kept what they could not make sense of to themselves. Of course, from our vantage point in history, we know that they didn't stay silent, and in fact, not for very long. We don't know that from Mark's story, but we hear that from the other accounts. Something happened, and the women dealt with their fear and confusion, and um, decided to step into the story, which I think took a lot of courage, actually. 
So I want to talk this morning now about what, what is the story that these women and their friends stepped into. And I want to start by saying it's a much, much bigger story than them and their individual lives, a much bigger story than their own relationships with Jesus, a much bigger story than their own imagining. Now, let me also say clearly that their own individual lives and their own individual relationships with Jesus is part of the story. Absolutely, we've been singing about that. You know, Jesus dying for me, my salvation, it's part of the story. But I also want to say very clearly that it's not the whole story. Okay, so what is the story they've stepped into? I'm going to tell it to you in five scenes. I read something like this about six, seven years ago and have kind of adapted it slightly and I think it might be helpful in this context this morning. Five scenes that explain the what and the why of the story. Okay, the first scene is um, designed for good. So this scene happens right at the beginning, which is a good place for a story to start, when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in, in that creation. I want to say again up front here, how you believe that happened doesn't actually matter for you to get this scene. You might be a six-day literalist and you think that in the way that we understand 24 hours, God created the world. You might be more of an old earth creationist, so you think God still created the world, but it happened over a longer period of time and even with some evolving in that process, but not taking away from the fact that God did the creating. I want to say to you that they're interesting debates to have, but they don't actually matter. They don't actually matter. What matters about this scene and what matters in this story is that you believe God intelligently and intentionally did the creating. How he did that is a matter for conjecture, but he intentionally and deliberately created, and he created the world for good. He created us to love him and to love each other and to find good work and good meaning in the, in the broader creation that he also designed for good. And you know what? When human beings get those things right, we only see it in little ways nowadays perhaps, but when we love God, when we love each other and when we're doing a good job of caring for the, the, the creation, the creative world that God has given us, we are at our best, aren't we? You just feel it. It's like a sweet spot. Okay, now let's look at the world today. There's certainly very, there's a lot that's good in this world. We could make a list of those things. Here's some of my things that tell me the world is good. There's friends and there's flowers and there's new babies and there's Thai food and there's mountains and there's camping, there's chocolate eggs. <laughs> there's a lot that's good in the world. But when we look around, we see that not everything is good in our world. We see people who are terribly sick, sometimes to the point that they can't, can't be fixed, can't be healed. We see people struggling with addiction. We see people who live sad lives or actually you know, depressed, clinically depressed. Many, many people are hungry. Many are lonely and not cared for properly. There are wars and terrible crime. And I think I could probably say safely that wherever you stand on God, whatever you understand of God, whatever your faith status is in relation with God, most human beings, most that I meet certainly outside of the church, would agree that the world and our relationships are not the way they ought to be. I mean, clearly, as I say, wherever you stand on the story of God, we do not live in a garden of paradise. That's clear. And that's because somewhere along the line, human beings started saying, hang on a minute, 
Who's God to tell me what to do in this circumstance? How do I know God's way is the right way in this circumstance? And that meant kind of that we end up making decisions that definitely hurt God because they disregarded him. We end up making decisions that definitely hurt each other. And we ended up making decisions that made us less able to be caretakers of this beautiful creation and less likely to find meaning and purpose in our work. And I actually think I could suggest that this is one of the simplest definitions of what the Bible calls sin. Ignoring God and his good ways, and out of that, hurting each other, and disregarding the creation we are made to care for. Simple definition of sin, as the Bible calls it. And of course, once we'd started down that path, once we'd started down the path of, well, who's God to tell me? We just get really turned inwards. And life became all about me and my hopes and my dreams and my power and my desires and the way I want to spend this weekend even, the way I want my life to go. And it became certainly less and less about our hopes and our dreams and what's best for us. And certainly, little regard at all for God's own dreams and plans for his creation. And so that brings us to scene two. We're kind of in that already, really. Damaged by evil. Call scene two, damaged by evil. Because human beings ended up in a mess. It's a relational mess. That's the best way to describe it. We're made, we're relational beings. We're made to be in relationships. So it makes sense that when we mess up, it's relationally that we mess up, doesn't it? I think it does. We mess up with ourselves. We mess up with each other. We mess up with God. And we mess up with the rest of his created order. Some of us do a much better job at hiding this mess than others. But I want to say to even the most lovely of you, the mess is there. <laughs> it just is. I can only talk about myself in this context. It would be unfair to pick on any of you. And you know what? Maybe I look pretty nice on the outside as far as mess goes. I haven't murdered anyone. <laughs> That's pretty good. Actually, some days that's very good. <laughs> no. But hey, I've got my mess. I've been so cross and yelled so loudly that I frightened my two-year-old. She's 36 now. But I remember that day, you might think, oh, we all yelled at our kids. I yelled at her way too inappropriately, and I saw fear in her eyes. I saw that little girl think, I don't think my mummy is safe. <laughs> Not good. I have been so selfish that I have said unfair and unretractable things to my lovely husband, who's out there serving, I think. You could tell him I said that after, okay? That would be really good. And I've been so afraid that some of you might not think that I'm good enough, that I've made myself out to be smarter and kinder and wiser than I am. And I've been so hungry for more things, or actually more often for quick fixes, that I haven't given a thought to the strain that my quick fix consumerism puts on the rest of a non-human created order. It's just easier to grab something, chuck it out the next day. That's some of my mess that I feel brave enough to tell you about. <laughs> You'll have your own. And I reckon you could understand 
if God actually just wanted to walk away. I could understand if you wanted to walk away from my mess. <laughs> but God is the sort of God who enjoyed a walk in the garden, in the cool of the evening with the first people he created. That's not the sort of God who walks away. That's the sort of God who walks too, and that's scene three, restored for better. Instead of walking away, God came right into human history as Jesus of Nazareth. He saw the wheel, the way the wheel of human history was turning and turning and heading without, without any hope of change in, the, in an inevitable direction of death and destruction. And he knew that human beings wouldn't, or even if we wanted to, couldn't change the direction of that wheel. And so Jesus, who was, I know, as Josh said on Friday, somehow mysteriously fully God and fully human, Jesus threw his body into the wheel of human history and the wheel crushed him as he took the worst the world could throw at him. But you know what? That wheel turned. That wheel turned and the course of human history has changed as Jesus absorbed evil in love, with love. And then he rose from the dead and as extraordinary and again mysterious as unlikely that, as that seems to us, that is what we celebrate today. That Jesus has risen from the dead to show us that death has been defeated to show us that the story will go on, to show us, to, to prove to us, to, to make it clear that the, the course of human history has been altered in good ways. Okay, now it's quite true to say this in this context. It's quite true to say that Jesus um, died to overcome the evil that I'm responsible for. It's quite true to say that Jesus died to overcome the evil that you are responsible for. So we can sing those songs we've been singing about Jesus dying on the cross for me. You'll hear that a lot, of course, in churches at Easter time and all year round. Jesus died for me, for, for my mess, for my sins. But I think, and you've heard me say this before, I think I need to say it again today, I think it is inadequate to make the cross all about Jesus dying for my sins so that I can be put right with God and I can live a bit more of a comfortable life now knowing that when I die, I am going to be with God in heaven and kind of like that's the end of the story. I do believe that's going to happen. But I think there's more. If we stop there, well, that's just what we're doing. We're not actually stepping right into the story. I think there's more to the why of the cross. So I want to suggest that it might be better to say Jesus died so that each one of us can be fully, truly human and whole in that place, so that each one of us can find our good purpose, and God's good purpose, for his whole world. He died so that all of his creation can be made right. And we can be in that, we can be part of that. But it's bigger than just me and me being right with God. That's an important part of it. You don't get to the rest of the story without that. But don't stop there. It feels like a cheap gospel. A gospel story that hasn't quite got to its end. And you know, regardless of whether or not you choose to step into the story, 
God's good plans for all creation are unfolding. I believe that without a doubt. But, and this is the part I really love out of all of this story, if we choose to step into the story, so trusting that Jesus is God himself and has defeated if you can do that, if you can choose to admit that living without reference to God's good ways has meant disaster for you, disaster for me, disaster for all of God's creation, then you get to step into the story in partnership with Jesus. And that is scene four. Sent together to heal. We are invited to partner with God to restore relationships with him, with each other and with all of his created order. And this is not a waiting until that one day eternity. You remember I said a few weeks ago, someone in my life group said, you know, when we choose to follow Jesus, we have stepped into eternity. We are in eternity now in that, in that, in that way. We're not waiting for that one day happy ending in the distant future. We have a mission, you and I, any of us who choose to follow Jesus. I believe we have a mission to with Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, give the world a preview. It's never going to be the full story, but give the world a preview of the final scene. Evil has been defeated. That's what we've celebrated this morning. It's in its death throes. It's, not, it's influence isn't gone. It's been defeated, but it's in its death throes and still influences the world for sure. But when we choose to step into the story and follow Jesus, he actually invites us, and more than that, helps us with the power of his Holy Spirit to choose words and actions that absorb evil in love. That's how I see scene four. We get to partner with Jesus through the power of the Spirit to choose actions and words that echo that absorption of evil on the cross. We get to absorb evil in love, in our own actions and words, through the power of God's Spirit. How are you tracking? Something to think about. Five, scene five. One final chapter to this story, and you know what, we really need this. It's called Set Everything Right. We really need it because I don't want you in any way to hear that I am saying if we just work hard enough, we partner with Jesus and God, and you know, the Holy Spirit's power in us, we can fix this world. <laughs> that's not what the story is about. That's not what that partnership is about. The world is only going to be put right. Everything is only going to be put right when Jesus comes again because the thing we were created for, the good relationship we were created for, requires that we actually live with God. And so scene five can only happen when Jesus comes again and we actually live in a new earth with God. There's no amount of partnering or good work we can do that gets away from the fact that we're designed to live with God. And of course, the story actually won't be over when you get to scene five, when we get to scene five. We're in scene four now, historically, if you like. When we get to scene five, the story won't actually be over. It'll actually be like the story is just starting and we'll be free to live the good lives that we are designed for in a good creation that God has designed. So I want to suggest that it's this big story, um, the, the big story that we are actually celebrating today. One of my favourite um, commentators is Bishop Tom Wright. 
And I reckon, he, I don't know if he knows about this story, but I found something he wrote which I think sums up the big story really well. He wrote this. The one true God who made all of his creation for good, the one true God has taken charge of the world in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Got scene one there. A little bit jump into scene three. He goes on to say, God's plans to put the world right have finally been launched. And the ancient sickness, that evil of scene two, that has crippled the whole world and humans with it, has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life, he says, has come to life. What a beautiful image. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power. Not the power of death, not the power of evil, but the power of love. And one day Jesus will return and all creation will be completely and utterly made right. And in the meantime, scene four, we humans can be caught up in the transforming work of Jesus in the here and now. Can you hear with me an echo of the words of the messenger who met the women at the empty tomb? Fancy, I can hear these words. Don't be waiting at this empty tomb, people. Don't come here with your burial spices and turn this into a wailing wall. And don't make coming to the tomb, coming to church, sort of an annual Easter event in which you reminisce nostalgically about the great guy Jesus was. Had so much to live for. Don't do that because Jesus is alive. So can you see why Mark might have told his story so abruptly? To the women 2,000 years ago, there was this message. He's waiting for you to join him in Galilee. What will you choose? And to us 2,000 years later, this same message, Jesus is waiting here now, not even in Galilee, here now. What will you choose? Will you have the courage to step out from behind your fear and your silence and choose to step into the story? Maybe it's not so much about fear and silence for you. Maybe it's more about um, having the humility to rise above your own sense of the extraordinariness of this whole thing. How could it possibly be? Maybe that's the thing that keeps you from stepping into the story. So we have the humility to rise above your own incredulity and step into the story. Will you make the time, sometimes it's just that, will you make the time a deliberate, intentional decision to step into the story so that Easter 2019 becomes the birthday of a new life and not another anniversary of an old life? What will you choose? tomb is empty. Jesus waits. What will you choose?
Will you join me in prayer? Father God, it, it is an awesome story. And from a human perspective, as we've said uh, over this weekend, it, it, it's a hard to believe story. <laughs> as Josh said on Friday, you know, we don't know people who come back to life. But as we've also said over these last few weeks, most of us have that deep instinct that there is something beyond us and our understanding. And in that case... <laughs> It could well be you, God. And all of this could well be true. We thank you for this incredible story. And Lord, wherever we sit in it, whether we're right outside of it, just observing, whether we can kind of accept some of the scenes but struggle with some of the others, we just want to take a moment in this space, maybe just to do a stock take. Where, where are we in this story? What are we comfortable with? What are we find difficult to understand. And Father, we want to thank you that the story is actually about me <laughs> and each one of these people and millions of others beside. But we also want to thank you that it's not just about me <laughs> and these people and others. Your story is huge, God. You created all of your creation, including human beings, for good. And your beautiful plan is to restore all of your creation, including us, to the good we were intended for. So two things for us this Easter. For some, Lord, maybe courage to step into the story that Mark left hanging there. <laughs> And maybe for others of us, courage to step further into the story so that our own relationship with you isn't just a private comfort. A one day in the future insurance even. But that we can learn to see it as part of you restoring all of your creation, all of humanity towards your good design and your good purpose. Thank you, Father, that you meet us wherever we are. And I want to pray for the people sitting here today, whatever is going on in heads and hearts, that uh, you will continue to be present with them, be with them in the conversations and the uh, things that might need to happen out of this space now, Lord. We know that you will be. We know that you are patient and loving and persevering and that you wait and ask us what is it is that we will choose.